Good to have you all here to worship this morning. It's to worship our, our Lord, our King, Jesus. Uh, just got a couple of announcements for you guys today. Uh, midweek worship is going to be starting up uh, September 6th, every Wednesday night. Starts at 6 p.m. Um, great time to come out and just kind of give thanksgiving to the Lord in the middle of the week. Praise Him for His work in our lives. Um, I heard a thing, a new thing about, uh, there's a study out, evidently, that um, the part of our brains that produce anxiety and the parts of our brains that give thanksgiving can't happen at the same time. So I don't know about you, but those things in my life that give me anxiety go away. They just fade away when I'm giving thanksgiving to the Lord. I don't know. It's a good time. Come out during the middle of the week, worship with us. It's open to everybody. Um, Youth ministry is going to be starting up that same night, uh, so youth groups, um, and then Awana sign-ups are going to be on September 13th, um, right after the worship. So uh, that's all for announcements. Let's do our memory verse together. Praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Psalm 98.6. Lord God, just lift up this time to you, God. We offer our hearts to you and just praise you, worship you for, for your work in our lives and your gift of salvation, God. We just lift this up in Jesus' name. Well, church, we went through a wonderful series this summer. And we took a little break from the book of Mark. If you remember, here's your reminder that we opened up uh, this year in the book of Mark, and we have gone through many incredible journeys as Jesus teaches us about the new kingdom that he brings, the new kingdom that he brings. And so uh, we're going to continue. This is like part two. We're going to go into part two of a three-part Mark uh, series. So uh, Jesus is going to double down, and we're going to be talking about what is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and life on earth. He's going to begin to really point out those differences. But as we get there, um, I got a question for you. How many of you, as you've been driving around the roads, you see a little thing, sometimes, a lot of times in the minivan windows, and it says, baby on board. You guys ever seen those? In my young days, I used to see those, and I, I thought, you know, that's kind of funny. That's a little ridiculous, because you know, before I was going to try to hit you, but now that I see that sign that said, baby on board, I'm probably going to avoid you at all costs. Like, that's just not the case, right? I wasn't going to hit you before, but I like to think that that baby on board sign, what it communicates is the new view of life of the parents now that they have a baby on board. You know what I'm saying? Anybody remember that feeling? You have a baby and you go, ah! That's the best way I can describe that feeling, you know? I'll remember when I had twins, and we, were, we had them at Billings Clinic in Billings, and I remember we were in the hospital a few days, and they showed us how to take care of them, and uh, they now have survived until nine, which is amazing, uh, because I'm, I'm the dad. And, and uh, so I remember we get them, and we buckle them up into their seats, and we put them in the back of the car, and I remember getting in the car, driving through Billings for the first time. And I remember thinking, 
I've completely forgot how to drive right now. I don't even know what to do. What button do I press? Because I'm so freaked out that we've got these two little creatures in the back that I have to keep alive. And now everything that I see is a potential harm to them. You know what I'm saying? Everything on the road, it just completely changed my driving life. Um, and then I got, you know, uh, confident again. But in that moment, how I viewed the world was completely different because something had happened to me. We're going to read about a passage today that something that, that, that something's going to happen to the disciples. Jesus is going to show them something that is geared towards changing their view of the entire earth. It's supposed to change their earthly view and begin to peel back this idea that it isn't just about what we see, but there's something happening that's so much bigger that we don't see. And so Jesus is going to start to reveal to the disciples what this looks like. See, I think today, as we begin to prepare our own hearts to encounter this passage, today, a lot of us have been lied to. Actually, all of us have been lied to in a lot of different avenues, whether it be TV or entertainment or the culture that we're raised up in. And a lot of it is always that right here and right now is what's important. And we get to this earthly mindset. Have you ever been there? I tell my kids uh, that a lot of times we get so worried about things, but we say that people are more important than things. Have you ever had to remind yourself of that? That we need to change our mindset. And see, there's this enemy that is in the world, and he's trying to sell. He's trying to make sure that we just live for this life. See, the enemy doesn't doesn't want you pondering your eternity, your life, because if you do, you may notice that you are not standing with Christ and run to him. So the whole idea is he wants to keep you entertained. He wants to keep you focused and thinking about the day-to-day battles instead of thinking on the heavenly realities that are far different from earthly realities. Amen? And so today, we want to begin to, as the disciples are going to go on this journey, change our view, change our worldview. Everybody say worldview. Okay, so the idea is that we change our earthly view to a heavenly view of the world. What we're going to see, I think a lot of us, have you ever seen this movie? Here's, here's kind of a, just another, have you ever seen this movie? very intriguing. Maybe it's a little older. Some of you are like never seen that. It's it's the whole premise of this movie is that these kids are commanding a simulated space military against what they think are simulated enemies. They're not real enemies. But at the end of the book or, or the, the game or the, the movie, you find out that it was really happening the whole time, really happening the whole time. The only difference is that the players didn't know, and it changed how they play the game. And so here Jesus, is, as we brace for this impact, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom as we walked up. And you remember the climax through chapter 8 was the disciples finally recognized. Peter steps up and he says, Jesus, you are the, the Christ or the Messiah. There's this confession about who Jesus is. And so they're, they're starting to get it. But now things, Jesus is going to double down and become very urgent, trying to help them see that the way they see the world is not what truly is. And so he's going to peel back this veil. He wants them to see the reality of what they're doing. And it's going to change how they play this game of life. Let's go ahead and jump into that passage then. Mark 9, 1. If you got your Bibles, Mark 9, we're going to be in verse 1. 
Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I love that that's verse 1, and then all of a sudden, boom, right after. So after six days, this is where it takes place in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a mountain, a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them or transformed. Something happened that he, the reality of Christ is what they get to see. And here's what happens when you see the reality of Christ. The disciples are seeing him for who he is and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. (laughs) I think many of us could relate with Peter in this statement now. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down to the, down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do, you, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So I want... I want us to explore as we think about this passage. At this point, the disciples, well, through Peter, have confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Yet, there seems to be a danger knocking at the door because Jesus doubles down on this urgency. He's like, no, no, you don't get it yet. Well, Peter confessed right? He confessed that Jesus was Messiah with his lips, but Jesus is still kind of poking at this idea that the disciples don't fully grasp what that confession means. They don't fully know what that means for them. Yet, So danger is still at the door for the disciples. This is a dangerous place to be. Do we have Christians today that say they believe in Jesus and they know Jesus and they call themselves Christians but are confused? Maybe they're not Christians. We have I I call it one of the most concerning or alarming passages in the Bible. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, if you got a Bible, Matthew 21, 7, sorry, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And here Jesus says, and then 
will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So is there a sense that we can think in our brains that we understand the kingdom when we don't? Is there a sense that we can believe that we're a Christian and not be one? Here, I think Jesus understands the hearts of the disciples. They've confessed with their mouths, but there is something lacking. As we know, Romans 10, 9, they're not yet believing in their heart that God will raise him from the dead. And we know that, according to Romans 10, 9, that's how salvation happens. But now the disciples are stuck in this area of grappling what that means for them. You ever ask the question, if Jesus is everything that the Bible teaches and everything that he says he was and is, have you ever asked the question, what does that mean for me? Does it change our lives? Does it impact how we go to work? Does it impact how we see our people around us and our neighbors? Does it impact how we do church? It should if we recognize the truth of Christ. And so the disciples are grappling with this, and Jesus knows this. Jesus, now having taught the kingdom, will begin to reveal it to the disciples in a radical way, in a way that the whole, that is wholly different from their earthly way of thinking and seeing the world. There's this idea for us as Christians, brothers and sisters, that we have to begin this process of unlearning earthly thinking. We have to unlearn some of the earthly thinking that has been so ingrained in us, and we have to begin to learn at the feet of Jesus this new holy uh, view of the world. Uh, I, I like this picture right here. The disciples are now at a precipice in their walk with Jesus. Jesus is now, it's been years of ministry up until this point in Mark, and now Jesus is going to be walking straight to Jerusalem from this point. After the confession, he goes to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus begins his march to the cross. And so now things are going to be happening more urgently and more directly. Jesus' ministry becomes, man, more direct, more intense. If it, as we think, man, how could it be more intense? But all of a sudden now the disciples are standing on the top of this. And by the way, this mountain still exists. It's at the, I've been there. I've seen it. It's in the Valley of Megiddo. And then there's this like kind of this hill. It's more of a hill for us here in Wyoming. Can I say that? The mountain is more of it. It was like a big hill, but it's this perfect hill in the back part of the valley of Megiddo. Um, and they were standing on this mountain, and Jesus then is revealed for who he actually is. They're like beholding something that is almost beyond belief, and it takes grappling. It takes this idea, okay, if, if this is what Jesus is, it means that there has to be some change in me. See, Jesus is upping the stakes, moving at a quicker pace because now he is on the road to the cross. And here's where we pick up. And one of the things I want you to see in the passage, so as Jesus is transfigured before them, what stands out as he was transfigured or transformed in front of them? What stands out in the book of Mark? You say that? His clothes, some of your translations will say his garments, became what? You guys with me? Let me hear it. Became radiant. They became intense. Um, so they became 
uh, in a way, they became perfectly or intensely white in a way, and it says here, this is an important truth for us, that the earth, that no one on earth could bleach them. Well, that really is the gospel to think about. The righteousness of Christ is something that no human being can attain. Amen? Righteousness, I just define righteousness as rightness with God. Rightness with God. That his righteousness or his rightness with God is, is nothing that any of us as human beings can attain on our own. And so this is really intriguing, but you think about the gospel itself, we call it the great exchange, that Jesus took our sin upon his shoulders and paid the price on the cross, yes? Okay, did you guys know that he gave you something in return for his sin? What did he give you in return for taking upon himself your sin? What did he give you? His righteousness. You guys, this is amazing. Jesus is revealing to the disciples. He's like, here's a taste of the gift I'm going to give you. I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to give you perfectly righteous clothes and garments. And we see that in Scripture, this exchange, the great exchange of the gospel is when we believe and trust in Jesus. He takes our sinful garments, and he puts upon us his perfectly white robes. We have that all over Scripture, but especially this picture in Revelation 16, 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So there's idea of garments. When we have the garments of Christ on, we are made righteous. It's not our righteousness, but he clothes us in righteousness. And then one of the elders, this is a Revelation 7, 13 through 14 says, then one of the elders turns to John, addressed me saying, who are these clothed with white robes? Did you hear that? Clothed with white robes. And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is giving the disciples a foretaste of his own righteousness. And he's saying, this, this is what I'm going to give to you. Everything is going to change. Isaiah, this is even in the Old Testament, this concept of the great exchange that Jesus is going to take our sinful garments and put on us the, the garments of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I want you to know that Jesus sees the mess, doesn't he? He, it's no surprise to him that we are a mess. Can, I'm a mess. Even as your pastor, I'm a mess without Jesus. And there's this beautiful sense that in the middle of the mess, he knows that he's going to take those garments off and he's going to put on this robe of righteousness that comes from him and him alone. And by the way, it says no one, no one on earth could bleach them the way that his clothes were radiant. We could not do this for ourselves, but Jesus is showing us what he is going to give us. 
And I think, again, in Revelation 3.17, this theme of what we're clothed in comes to fruition in one of the churches in Laodicea. See, they were fooled. They were fooled into thinking that they had everything they needed in the world. Listen to this. And I believe this is the Western church today. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 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 excuse me, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, this is Jesus speaking, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and, and get this, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent and so there's this idea church that there's church today there was church in the past in Laodicea that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we don't need anything when we desperately need to cling and to put on the righteous robes of Christ that he gave us freely by faith and so now the disciples are confronted am I going to try to live life my way and doing good things on my own they're starting to realize that Jesus is not just some guy. He's not just a teacher that knows about the kingdom of heaven, but he literally is the way to the gifts of God. He's literally the way, the truth, and the life as he proclaimed. He is somebody to both live for and to die for. You see what I'm saying there? I think a lot of us, when we think about this idea of, of dying, you're, it's easier for us to comprehend like, oh yeah, I would die for Jesus. But how many of you, it's a little harder for us to, to, to think about this concept of, I also need to live for Jesus. What does that mean? That mean, might mean a long haul of going to work and being faithful in the little things of life for the sake of Christ. Man, dying for Jesus as a martyr, sometimes that sounds amazing. But sometimes the harder thing and the things the disciples are going to have to start grappling with is the big and the small. Jesus is worth it. He just revealed himself as the, the God with us, the Emmanuel. He's worth the big and the little costs, the everyday deeds that we need to walk out to his glory. He's worth those things. The cleaning of toilets to the glory of the Lord. Can I get, where's my janitor? I should hear an amen on that one, right? Doing the hard things to the glory of the Lord. Well, we know that he's worth it. He revealed himself to the disciples. And this is going to change how they view everything. Everything in their life was going to change. Nothing then is held back if we know that we're receiving the robes of righteousness from God. We hold nothing in our lives back. We live in a, such a compartmentalized world today, don't we? Where we like to think, hey, this part of my life has nothing to do with church. You ever thought that? This part of my life over here, this real, I, 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 deal, I dealt with this with teenagers and college students all the time. We called it sexual atheism. They were a Christian at church on Sunday, and they were all about the name of Jesus but then Monday came and there was a party on campus and all of a sudden they were like, they were dating and they were looking for relationships and that part of my life is not belonging to God. Do you have a part of your life that you don't let Jesus own and be Lord over? 
See, the disciples are beginning to grapple the lordship of God in their lives. That means that no part of our life is separated from him. Our favorite entertainment, our pastimes, our finances, our time, our parenthood, our time as a student, our time as an employee, our time as a boss, as a business owner, our time when no one is looking, our leisure belongs to who? The one who placed white robes on us and paid his life for ours and gave us rightness with God. We say, Lord, you are in charge of my life. Nothing is kept back from you. He is either God or he is not. And so the transfiguration is making the disciples have to consider, is he God and is he Lord of my life? See, I I love that you get this reaction from Peter. Peter's like, um, anybody just kind of, when you don't know what to say, you just keep speaking and it gets worse. And you're like really good at digging that hole for yourself. I was telling the guys this morning, that's me. Um, But there's this sense where Peter's like, I don't know what to do, but let's build something. Let's recognize who we got here. You have Elijah with you and, and you have Moses with you. Let's Let's build something to recognize this. Why did he say this? For he did not know what to say. Well, he's sure doing a lot of speaking for not knowing what to say. For they were terrified. I think for us, this idea that Jesus is Emmanuel takes some grappling, doesn't it? And I think a lot of us, because we don't know what to do, we just start doing stuff. You ever been there? Where he's just like, man, surely God will love this, and surely God will do this, and he'll recognize me if I say this. And so we try to run around pleasing the Christian crowd and trying to do right things that we think other people would see. All the while, here Jesus is trying to say, guys, the things I'm going to ask you to do and to walk in are not going to be like what the world would think are good things. He's trying to change their earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. To do that, he had to exchange their robes. That he's no longer just a good teacher, but someone to both live and die for. And I just want to put out the premise, how many of you relate to the disciples that we don't know how to react to the fullness of Christ that we read as revealed in the Word of God? It's like overwhelming, it's like awe-inspiring. It, it should lead us to our knees. There's this sense. I think the American church has made it so much about knowing things about Jesus that we forget that Jesus is both, we can know him, but he is unfathomable. That he is beyond something that we can just grasp. That he's beyond something that we can just understand with our theology. We could spend a lifetime trying to pursue and still not come to the end of who Jesus was. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There's this sense that we don't know how to deal with this idea that Jesus is who he says he is. And you know what? That's a good place to be. Because you know what a right view of Jesus is? Awe. Dumbfounded. We should be people that walk around dumbfounded by Jesus. You ever seen somebody that, like, they've witnessed something that they're just kind of, like, in shock by? Uh, I have no idea how to describe what just happened. Think about the disciples when they see Jesus transfigured in front of them. They're walking around like, I have no idea how to process what just happened. I think that's many of us today. So before 
in the early parts of Mark before he taught in parables. Now, Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way directly to the cross now, he says in this passage, I will rise from the dead. He gets really direct with the disciples. Do you guys notice that? He gets really direct with the disciples because the urgency is doubling down. He's walking literally to the cross. And the disciples are now in this place where they're grappling with the reality of Jesus and what this means for them. And they have this thing that we still struggle with today. Is it literal or figurative, Jesus? You guys ever do that? Where you're like, you know Jesus is calling you to something, and you try to find a figurative meaning for it so you don't have to? And so the disciples are talking back and forth, and they're like, surely he's been teaching in parables. He means something ethereal. He's trying to teach us an abstract concept, which means we don't have to obey. But no, there's no way out for them. They just saw the transfiguration. He's being literal. He's going to teach them and say that the kingdom of God is here. Guys, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. It came with us in Jesus. He brought the kingdom. It is here now. And so here Jesus is trying to tell them directly, I'm going to die on the cross. This, by the way, is going to be a continual dialogue because the disciples constantly come to this idea. He's like, I'm going to die on the cross, and then I'm going to raise on the third day. And they go, "Uh, that's not really going to happen. And then he says it again. And they go, "Uh." and then he says it again. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's this three-part conversation where Jesus is trying to help the disciples grapple with the reality that things are about to get shattered in this earth, that sin is about to get defeated, and it is going to change everything for humanity. And that is literal, by the way. That literally happened. My kids like to literally, you say literally a lot. It means it really does happen. But see, we live in a culture that likes to justify and make figurative the language of the Bible, don't we? You ever heard somebody, you read a passage of the Bible, and they say, oh, it doesn't really mean that? That happens to me all the time as a pastor. Like, really? They're like, yeah, just there's a way around it in the Greek. <laughs> I look in the Greek, and I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that that means that. And so we, we live in this relativist culture that likes to take the Bible, and we like to use it and kind of take out the things we want it to say, and we try to shift it into our worldly thinking, and so we take the truths of God's Word, and we try to apply them in the context of how we live our lives, and we end up changing the truth to match the things that we want to see. That's called relativism. We have a relativistic approach to Scripture. By the way, when you have small groups or Bible studies, have you ever heard this question? What does that mean to you? That's both a good question but it's also a very dangerous question because the word of God communicates God's timeless truth that's unchanging. So when we walk around and ask, hey, what's your opinion on what this means? That's how we get hundreds of thousands of different denominations, isn't it? God meant what he said, and he said what he meant, and he gives it to his people, and he says to be united in the mind of Christ. And so there's this sense that there aren't all of these different truths, that the Bible itself teaches truth, and it's unchanging. It's not relative based on how you're feeling today. And so here's an earthly example of what Jesus is trying to bring them to. See, obedience says that we apply the scriptures however he wants no matter the cost or the consequences. My greatest fear, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, 
is that I would spend a long career preaching the truth that everyone says amen and then walks away unchanged by the truth of God's word. And that's what happened with the prophets. Can we be honest? The whole book of the Old Testament, the prophets, they came, they spoke the word of God, and they were what? Completely rejected. That's because people love to choose the earthly worldview over the heavenly worldview. Brothers and sisters, please don't miss it. Don't miss it. If you're grappling right now with if God is real and if Jesus is true, then this changes everything. I think some of the maybe theological excuses I've heard for not walking in obedience to God. And some of these are good truths, but man, some of them can be really harmful when they're used in the wrong way, in unintended way that God didn't intend. Like, I think about the idea of eternal security. Once we're saved, we're always saved. And so a lot of people have taken that to mean, okay, so now I have a ticket to heaven. And now that Jesus saved me, I do whatever I want. I can sin as much as I want. I can do whatever I want. I can live in an earthly way. And I think the transfiguration would come and say, how could you see Jesus transfigured? How could you see him conquer death and turn around and do whatever you want and have nothing change in your life? How could that happen? Those two things can't go together. If you've witnessed a life-changing event and walk away unchanged, I ask, did you witness the shattering of sin in our lives on the cross. God saves people. Here's another one that I've heard. God saves people so I don't have to share the gospel. Yeah, God does the saving. Is that a, is that a, a truth? We should say amen. God does save people. He saves people despite us. But he also says go to the believer, doesn't he? People are saved, but they also have a passage that says, how will they hear if no one is sent? And so there's this idea, if, if you're here and you just believe that, that I don't have to share the gospel and obey my God and what he asked me to do, because he'll do it anyway, brothers and sisters, that's a taking something a little bit more figuratively than what Jesus would have wanted us to think. Oftentimes, you ever heard somebody give spiritual-sounding answers to get out of something? Surely none of us have ever done that. We give very spiritual answers. Oh, I have to go pray more. That's why I can't come. Or, by the way, we have to have a prayer meeting so that we can gossip. You ever heard that one? We got to have our gossip session, and it's under this spirituality so that we can sit and talk about others in those meetings. We got to be really careful that we don't use spiritual things as they were unintended. So, what do we do? How do we walk in obedience? and not in relativism? How do we make sure that we aren't trying to take the truth of God and make it serve us instead of we serving the Word of God in obedience? Well, Jesus continues his intense march for the disciples, and here's where we're going to end today. Before before this profession of Messiah, before in Jesus' early ministry, he said Elijah would come. And we know in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that Elijah would come. But he turns to the disciples and he says, now, in answering their question, when they're like, hey, we heard that Elijah was supposed to come first and restore all things, Jesus turns around and he says, what? Elijah has come. Elijah has come. It's here. This is happening right in front of you. This is not there and then. This is here and now. The kingdom of God has come. 
We have that. It was a prophecy out of Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, we know Elijah back in chapter 6 in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus tells us that Elijah was who? Who prepared the way for his coming? It was this guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah is what the scriptures say. And so here he's trying to say to the disciples, it's not there and then, and there's nothing to wait for because this is happening now. Brothers and sisters, there's an urgency to our relationship with God because it's happening now. According to the scriptures, the last days are here. They're happening now. They're not, they're not way in the future. The last days, according to scripture, are now. Jesus has come. We've always been in the last days. John's message was repent. You guys remember John's message? If you look back at the ministry of John the Baptist, what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message, how did he restore all things? When he says, when Jesus is like, yeah, Elijah came and he restored all things. What was he restoring? Why does it say that he was restoring all things? Because he was reminding everybody of what? They were not right with God. What was he restoring? The standard of God's holiness, which nobody obtained. And so he told the world that said, I don't need the robes of, of Jesus because I'm righteous in and of myself. John came and said, no, you're not, and you don't even see it. Is that our world today? I'm good to go. No, you're not, and you can't even see it. You can't even see it. So John comes, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, we need to seek out God. we got to repent and change from our view and our ways to the ways of the kingdom. This new heavenly perspective has to change how we do life. When you think about your life with Christ, if you were still an unbeliever today, would you be doing the same thing? Would you be living life the same way? Has there been any change in your life? Maybe it's small that's okay, and that's good. But if you're living life exactly how you would with or without Jesus, if there's no change, I would ask, have you beheld Jesus? Because he changes how you do life. You can't help but be changed from the inside out. How you treat people, how you do life, what you do. But we make excuses and justifications. And by the way, does God see through our excuses and justifications? You're debating the undebatable. I always love uh, any Mandalorian fans out there. There's this character in Mandalorian. I'm going to really nerd out here for a second. In Mandalorian, there's this character that says, I have spoken. Uh, I always love that as a parent. I tried using that with my kids. I have spoken. And they go, ha! But with God, thus saith the Lord. And there's this sense that, that when he tells us something, there's a finality, there's a gravity to when the God of the universe says, I have spoken. And so here John comes and he says, God has spoken and we don't measure up. We don't measure up. So for us now, there's no more excuses or justifications. If we look at who Jesus really is, we have to, have to have to change, can't, don't we? Things have to move in the direction of Christ because today is the day of salvation. And so here Jesus takes them through this grappling of the new reality, the earthly 
worldview must pass away for a believer, and we must now walk in the heavenly perspective of this life. As soon as we say, as soon as we say, Lord, you are my Lord, we must live out that idea that he's the one in charge because he is the one speaking. So what do we do? What do we do, church? What do we do? And the reality or the new reality that Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand, that same reality applies to us. What do we do, church? What do we do? Let me propose this, that we conform our lives starting now, not tomorrow, starting now, not when we get our lives back together, starting now. How do we conform our lives to the Word of God and devote every part of ourselves to walking with Jesus? Some of you maybe are thinking, well, Shane, does that mean I just need to like quit everything and do church? No. It means you press into where God has you, but you do it not for your own sake, but you do it for the sake of Jesus, for the namesake of Jesus, because you have a heavenly perspective now. You work different. You don't work for man. You're not on man's payroll because you've already been gifted as a son. You have the righteous robes of Christ. You now work for him in everything you do. And there's where the scriptures say, we do all things to what? The glory of God. Today is the day to choose. So what? Obey today and don't wait. If you're here and you've called yourself a Christian, but you keep saying, maybe tomorrow I'll figure out how to live for him. Let today be the day that you walk in obedience in light of who Jesus really is. And then force, force, labor, work. This is this idea of discipline every part of your life into submission to Christ. If you're a believer here, if you're not a believer here, the Bible says it starts really simple. All you do, Romans 10, 9, is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There's that believing in your heart that you can't just profess with your mouth, but the second part is believe that God raised him from the dead, and it says what? You will be saved. So if you're here and you have not done that yet, maybe you've professed with your mouth, but you haven't done it with your heart, would you make today Jesus the Lord of your life and receive the robe of righteousness that he has for you? See, today is the day of salvation. Let it be today. If you're here and you're a small group leader, questions for you would be, what about my life is not submitted to Christ? What about my life is not submitted to Christ? And what do I need to change in light of the reality of Jesus? What do I need to change in light of the reality of Jesus? Lord Jesus, we pray for this offering, God, that it would go to your glory, to your kingdom and not ours, to your heavenly kingdom and not our earthly kingdom. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would receive worship, that you would be the Lord of our life, God, that we would be changed from the inside out. And Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that is wrestling with the reality of you, God, I pray that you would give them the courage and that you would press them to come forward and to talk, Lord, to talk with somebody and to grapple with the realities that the disciples grappled with. Lord Jesus, would you help us to go and live to change lives, God, because you've clothed us in your righteousness. Lord, would you give us a heavenly perspective? We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.